again. Welcome to the third episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. If you're a regular reader, you know that one of the things we watch most closely here is litigation involving the Church of Scientology. And right now, there is a lot going on and in far-flung places. Luckily for us, we have some great correspondents who help us keep up on what's going on. And in Los Angeles, we're fortunate to have longtime researcher Jeffrey Augustine on the scene. And lately, he's been very busy acting as our eyes and ears in various courtrooms. Jeffrey, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Um, you know, you've been invaluable lately. I'm stuck here in New York all the court action lately has been happening in Los Angeles and Florida. But at least for our Los Angeles uh, stories that we're covering, you've been in the man on the spot. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome, Tony. I'm glad to do it for the Bunker community. And thanks for having me on the show. And uh, there's so much going on right now. I just thought we'd go through some of the cases and talk about them a little bit. Um Let's start off with Valerie. Um, Valerie Haney sued Scientology in in 2019, uh, alleging that she'd been kidnapped, held against her will while she was in the Sea Org. She escaped from the Int base by hiding in the trunk of the car of an actor. Uh, But later, uh, I think because of uh, her father's wishes, who was still a Scientologist, she went back to Scientology and agreed to route out properly, which means signing a bunch of documents. And and you've done a lot of work, Jeffrey, about these kind of documents. What are some of the things she signed off on at that point that maybe was not in her best interest? Well, she likely signed a non-disclosure agreement. And that's something that's Scientology has been using it. The contract was leaked. I I have it posted on my blog, The Scientology Money Project. And that's where you agree not to talk about your time in this organization. You also agree there's a second document called a non-disparagement contract in which you agree to not talk disparagingly about any of the leaders of the Church of Scientology. So you don't talk disparagingly about Tom Cruise or David Miscavige. So leading names, leaders, anything like that. You basically agree to be keep your mouth shut for the rest of your life. And that's what the church would like. And Hub- Hubbard's fair game program, to, to go off on a tangent, but it's related, is designed to shutter a person into silence. And he actually wrote that. Shutter them into silence so they don't talk. Take away your voice. Take away your power to sue. Take legal action or do anything. And that's Scientology must always have 100% control at any cost. So that's what would be the intent of the documents, to make her powerless, silent, and go away and disappear forever. And as she was signing those documents, uh, they actually videotaped her doing so. And just recently at the bunker, we put up a transcript of this video they shot of her signing this document. And you know, like Debbie Cook before her, she was just, she was so ready to get away from Scientology. She'd sign anything. And so they asked her, you know, how is David Miscavige as a boss? And she said, oh, amazing. He's just amazing. I mean, she just wants to get out of that room. And among the things that she promised in these documents that she signed and that all Scientologists promise when they, when they get services at the church is an arbitration clause. It just basically says, if you have any problem with the church in the future, at any time in the future, you promise not to sue Scientology, but to bring your grievance to Scientology's internal art, religious arbitration system. And we know she signed something like that because when she sued, uh, that was what Scientology hit her with, was this arbitration clause saying, no, 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 you can't sue us. You agreed never to sue us, and instead to go to arbitration. And uh, her judge said, yeah, contract is a contract. Sorry, you have no right to sue, Judge Richard Burge. Now, you got a chance to see this guy, right? Yes, I did, yes. But how did he strike you? Well, uh, 
he strikes me as a paper pusher. I checked his background. Basically, he came to the bench later in life. He was a practicing attorney. And later in life, he was a political appointee. He was given a, a, a judgeship appointed to the bench by, I, I believe, uh, Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown. Um, so he's a political appointee. He comes to the bench later in life and he's a motions judge. And those are the lowest level judges. What they do is they keep the paperwork moving through the system, through the courts. So they'll, they'll get motions in all kinds of cases and they'll rule on them. And then, he really didn't, he really didn't seem very curious about the facts in the case at all, did he? None whatsoever. In fact, I was there. So, you know, I was on the other side. Uh, it's sort of like a wedding where, you know, I'm on one side and the Scientology attorneys are on the other. <laughs> you know, in, in, in fact, what was interesting, he didn't make any inquiries into it. He actually smiled at the Scientology attorneys when he referred it back to arbitration. Mm. I mean, it was just obvious. I, when I've spent my career in sales watching people's body language and movements. And Judge Burge is older. He's heavy set. He sort of ambled with some difficulty to the bench. And there were some other motions heard. And then this comes up and he doesn't, he doesn't care. He sees the word arbitration. And in his mind, oh, I can clear this off, you know, I can clear this off, off the courts and push it into arbitration, get rid of it. It's not my problem. He did. And, yeah. And that's what I want people to understand is that arbitration is very popular with judges because, look, most civil lawsuits simply come down to an amount of money, right? You've got somebody suing over the way they were treated as an employee or they're unhappy with the, what a product did to them. And they're just suing a company and they want a money reward. And so uh, arbitration is often very um, appropriate for that. You hire a retired judge. He hears both sides. And from a neutral position, he issues a verdict, and that saves the courts time and money, and that's fine. But that's not what happens in Scientology arbitration. It's a completely different concept. Yeah, you're correct. It's it, the, the the process, and and uh, Judge Burge did not take this into account. He didn't make inquiries into it. it's, it's it's inherent or intrinsic bad faith, or he didn't look at he didn't look at the nature of it. He wasn't interested. He saw arbitration. He's a lazy judge. So he punts, just puts into arbitration, do arbitration, and then come back. Right. And so he set, a, he set a court date way out, like a year ahead. And and two, that was two years, more than two years, two and a half years ago, he granted Scientology's motion to compel arbitration, basically told Valerie she had no right to sue. She's got to go through their arbitration. So for two years, she was fighting this, trying to find ways to overturn his decision, get him to reconsider it. And it just didn't work. And so... In meanwhile, Judge Burge left. Apparently, he moved to another courthouse, and so other other judges were given his cases. And in Valerie's case, it was a, a, a judge named uh, Judge Gail Killifer. And so we were curious to see if maybe she might treat things a little differently. Uh, and at this point, no, she's just you know she, the only question she's been asking apparently in the last week or so has simply been you know, has Valerie started this thing going? And, and the way the church wants Valerie to start the arbitration is by submitting a letter to what they call the International Justice Chief, a man named Mike Ellis. And they had, they had resisted this because Valerie doesn't want to deal directly with Scientology. She thinks of them as her abuser. And so her attorneys have been trying to get this information. And the church, the church says, no, Valerie's got to write to us directly. And the judge said, well, that's the contract she signed. So finally, this last Friday, um, a week ago, uh, Valerie did submit a letter, kind of a, um, a, a protest letter that is questioning the whole process and, and denying that this is an ecclesiastical matter, just attaching a copy of the lawsuit to complaint saying, here's my grievance. And what I was told was that... Um, I don't know if it was Judge Killifer or if it was probably more of the Scientology attorneys, but they're like, okay, but there's something missing here. You're not nominating an arbitrator. And let me explain. So in independent arbitration, you hire like a retired judge who's neutral to both sides. But in Scientology arbitration, they require a three-arbitrator panel 
and all three members have to be all three arbitrators have to be members of Scientology in good standing. And they they say Scientology says the way to make this happen is that Valerie's side will choose an arbitrator, Scientology will choose an arbitrator, and then those two arbitrators will choose a third. But the problem is, you know, so, you know anybody who sues Scientology is is a, a suppressive person. Scientology considers them an enemy, and all Scientologists are required not to talk to that person. So how are they supposed to select an arbitrator? So in in a way of protesting it, um, Valerie's attorneys then wrote down Elizabeth Moss for the arbitrator, which is very cheeky, very funny, very clever, and a great form of protest. Right, saying, "Look, we know Elizabeth Moss, actress, Handmaid's Tale. Uh, we know that she is." a um, Scientologist in good standing. She gave an interview not too long ago. And uh, so we're putting her on the list. That was Friday. That was last week. And this week um, there was another hearing. And uh, I know you couldn't make this one, but I got a description of it. And it basically just, the judge just asked one question. Has Valerie now started the arbitration? In other words, has she submitted an adequate letter? And the Scientology attorney said, yeah, that's it. Because, and I was a little surprised, but then I remembered Scientology doesn't want the judge involved in any part of it. And, and so there, so I expect Scientology to tell uh, Valerie, no, you can't have Elizabeth Moss, but that's going to be done between the IJC, Scientology and Valerie. It's not going to occur in court because they keep it sealed off. Uh, I was surprised by that, but you probably knew that that was coming. Uh, yeah, that that was my prediction, and and just by way of background, arbit. Uh, let me tell you something. Um, you can learn a lot of things from reading lawsuits. You can learn learn a huge. They're public documents. They're in the public domain, and and one one reason arbitration exists between parties is to hide dirty laundry, because I've learned I've learned a, a tremendous amount of stuff from lawsuits, right? And like all the dirty laundry comes out in deposition and at trial and cross-examination. And so Scientology and a lot of other firms have a vested interest in keeping it all silent so none of the dirty laundry comes out. Well, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I was I was trying to express the reason why judges like arbitration because it gets stuff off their docket. But the the downside, of course, is that things occur behind closed doors, as you're saying. It's, it's, it's a very important part of it. Well, let me give you an, an example of uh, Scientology where things go wrong in an open court of law. Something that was very revealing th- that uh, I covered on my blog is the deposition of Alan Cartwright, who's legal officer, Office of Special Affairs. This was the Rathbun case versus David Miscavige when Monique Rathbun was suing uh, David Miscavige. So Ray Jeffrey is cross-examining Alan Cartwright, and he's calling, he's calling him Captain Miscavige, right? Yeah. And Alan Cartwright objects and says, "No, he, no, no, you don't. We don't call him Captain Miscavige." And Ray Jeffrey says, "But he is a captain, and he's, and I'm going to continue to call him Captain Miscavige." So Mr. Miscavige's attorney, Wallace Jefferson, objects. Mr. Jeffrey, can you please not call my client Captain Miscavige? Ray Jeffrey, <laughs> no. Is there is well, I object to it. And, and Ray Jeffrey says, well, you can have a running objection if you want, but he is a captain. I'm going to continue to refer to him as Captain Miscavige. And then uh, Alan Cartwright says, look, I'm an ensign, but when I go in the office, I'm not called Ensign Cartwright. So you get this in this public document. It's very funny to read for us, not for Scientology, where you can't call my captain, David Miscavige, Captain David Miscavige, even though well, he signs stuff as Captain Miscavige and he is a captain in the CRG. You can't call him that. So you get this absurd Dr. Strangelove piece of theater going on in a legal document. That's what Scientology doesn't want. Well, and Jeffrey, you're making me miss... Ray, and what an amazing attorney and advocate for his clients Ray Jeffrey is. And I, I, gosh, I miss those days. He was so effective in court. He was so, 
he went in so prepared for what Scientology was going to throw at him. I miss, I miss that guy. But yeah, I mean, absurd things happen. But, but also, um, you know, Scientology doesn't want the facts in these cases occurring, being talked about in open court. It's just too damaging. But uh, anyway, so they, we'll find out. Uh, uh, Scientology wants all this to happen behind closed doors. So what's going to happen next is that Mike Ellis, the IJC, will respond to Valerie's nomination of Elizabeth Moss as an arbitrator. And I suspect they'll just tell her she's not available and you'll have to pick somebody else, but we'll find out that'll happen soon. So that's what, you know, one of the things that's interesting about right now is we're waiting right now for Scientology to respond to numerous things. Number one, we're waiting for Scientology to respond to Valerie nominating Elizabeth Moss as an arbitrator. So we'll see how that goes. Um, then the other, you know, this arbitration gambit has become such a boon to Scientology. Uh, and they are on a huge winning streak with it, with one exception. Um, now there's a new lawsuit, Jeffrey, that was filed in April by Valeska Paris, somebody our readers know really well, and another uh, Australian couple that was in the Sea Org, Gawain and Laura Baxter, who we don't know so well. But the three of them in their just blockbuster lawsuit that they filed on April 28th uh, listed years of abuses when they were children and when they were adults, when they were on the free winds as virtual slaves to the Sea Org. Um, and, you know, they are suing for tr human trafficking and, and, and conspiracy to commit trafficking. And we've been waiting for a couple months now for Scientology to respond. Well, just yesterday, just this week, I, I noticed a new court, a new document in that court case. And Scientology has tipped its hand. Um, in the next few days, Scientology is going to respond to that lawsuit by once again moving to compel arbitration. What that means is that in the last couple of months, uh, as they asked for a little extra time from the court, and the court gave it to them, what have they been doing? They've been digging into crates of old documents to see if they can find that Valeska and the Baxters had signed these contracts. I, I wasn't sure they were going to find them because I, I honestly don't know when the arbitration clause first showed up in these contracts. And it's been a while since Valeska and the Baxters were in. But apparently Scientology believes it has found contracts and it's going to try to derail yet another lawsuit into arbitration. Yes, and it's, it's it, 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 they will use arbitration whenever they can as, as their defense. And just by, by way of history, going back to 1964, L. Ron Hubbard wrote out a, an HCLPL, which I'll, I will send, you can post in the show notes, where he said one of the successful actions in fighting off attacks is getting to people to sign waivers, which is an abandonment of their legal rights. So Hubbard was up to this in 1964. After the Wollersheim case, they began to formalize their legal structure because in Wollersheim, everything was Church of Scientology, California. They could have lost everything. So they, they do a couple of things. They break the church into every org as its own separate legal entity, but they also realize they have to have an intake system using contract law that strips members of all possible rights. So it becomes an imbalanced power equation where they bring you into the system in that religious services agreement, you do agree to submit to binding arbitration as part of a contract to receive religious services. And, the, and this is where you can read an organization by its contract laws. It's a bad faith organization that has things to hide. They don't want to go to court. You know, they want to silence. So, but, but Hubbard was onto this in 64. When they formalized it in the 90s, early 2000s, I'm not sure the first actual contract. <clears throat> I've seen early ones, but yeah, they're going to play this for all it's worth until it's, until hopefully the Supreme Court overturns it because they want infinite duration. And I and I I, I, I noted in uh, when you covered the appeals court hearing, I was watching it live on Zoom. 
I don't know if you. Well, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to Bixler yeah, in a second. Okay. Let, let okay. me just let me just point out you made a really good point. Uh, it's important to see Scientology strategy in uh, light of its history. You're absolutely right because, um, uh, I, you know, you, you and I spend a lot of time on this, and other people may not. But it's important to remember that at one time, yes, Alron Hubbard had all of his eggs in one basket. The Church of Scientology of California was the mother church and really had, you know, the, all, most of the assets. And along came two lawsuits that, lawsuits that scared the crap out of them. They were both late 70s, early 80s, and then they both had huge judgments right around the same time in the mid 80s. One was Lawrence Wolersheim in Los Angeles. Um, the other one was the Tichborn Christofferson case up in Oregon. And what's really significant about both of those cases, they both involved former Scientologists suing over the basic concept that L. Ron Hubbard's technology had harmed them. This wasn't about, you know, harassment or surveillance or, you know, uh, some of these other things that we've fraud, we've seen later, you know, money fraud. This was literally about Scientology itself, the auditing, the training being harmful. And in both cases, juries agreed and, and gave huge awards. They were both around $30 million. And at that point, Hubbard and the other leadership realized they were vulnerable. And so you see a lot of changes being made. First of all, Church of Scientology of California was drained. They took all the money out of it. They created a, an alphabet soup of new organizations with obscure connections. Uh, now it's very easy for us to point and say that, yeah, here's the top organization and the next top. But for years, it was very obscure and difficult for attorneys to figure out. They did that on purpose. And they, they, they made it so that one organization could not be toppled and take down the whole movement. And the other thing was, as you've you know, really worked on really well, is that so on the one end, they made an organizational change. But on the other end, they started requiring members to sign all these contracts to prevent a future Wallersheim and Tichborn Christofferson. And then, and then not too long after those cases of around 85, 84, 85, 10 years later, you have Lisa McPherson, right? And, and here's right. another case that was really damaging to Scientology and really threatened things. So, you know, it's important to see the reason why they're so effective in court today, I think, is because they learned from those earlier uh, lessons. They have no illusions about what they're actually doing. They know they're ripping people off. They know they're damaging lives. They're just very good at protecting themselves from it. They're, they absolutely are. And, and in fact, um, <clears throat> I have a quote that Ray Jeffrey said that was Ray Jeffrey told me this was Hubbard's quote that was very descriptive, and he picked this out. This is Hubbard, quote, if, anyone, if anybody tried to attack a Scientology organization and pick it up and move it out to their perimeter or go over the hills with it today, this happened to us once, why they would find themselves involved in the most confounded, weird, massively legal, well, it's just like quicksand, quicksand. It's an interesting trick. Every time they shoot at you on the right side of a horse, you're on the left side of the horse. And then they prove conclusively you're on the left side of the horse. You prove conclusively that you're on the right side of the horse. They go mad after a while. This is what the basic legal structure is, unquote. Yeah, and no, that's absolutely right. It, well, yeah, because you can't hit a moving target. And I'm looking at the underground bunker, June 11, 2015. I did a guest article for you, Augustine, how Elrond Hubbard devised Scientology's most diabolical legal mechanisms. So going back earlier, Hubbard designed it, but his mistake was he put everything in the Church of Scientology, California, the old legal entity, which was disincorporated. And like you said, they blew it into a million pieces, the IES, IESA, RTC, CST, et cetera. The what it comes, yep. Yeah. What it comes down to is a little known Hubbard policy letter, February 18, 1966, attacks on Scientology which I've referred to earlier, he said, the third group of actions have been positive in stopping attacks, investigating noisily the attackers, 
getting waivers from all people we sign up, being religious in nature and corporate status. So look at that. He advocates fair game, waivers, which became arbitration, and being religious in nature and corporate status. That is hiding behind 501c3 tax exemption. So Scientology is this unholy fusion of secular contract law, which is what arbitration began, but they fused it into their 501c3. So you can see the, the, the perimeters of defense that Scientology sets up. 501c3, where a religion you can interfere. If that fails, we have arbitration. If that fails, then we're going to appeal and appeal and appeal, right? And so this is what we're seeing happening. And the, the takeaway is that these contracts are binding. They're binding legal documents as far as the, the courts are concerned. And they're going to put people in arbitration. Now, the court can review the arbitration to see if it's just, but arbitration itself can give Scientology two or three years to grind down a person. Well, let's 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 now turn to the one case where they uh, aren't having such an easy time, uh, which goes right to what you just said with Hubbard in, endorsing noisy investigations. Um, the third case I wanted to discuss. So Valerie's waiting for the IJC to respond on Elizabeth Moss. The uh, Valeska and the Baxters are waiting to see Scientology's motion to compel arbitration. The third case that we're waiting for a Scientology response is, of course, the Danny Masterson accusers. Uh, Chrissy Cornell Bixler, her husband, Cedric, um, Bobette Realis, and two women going by the names Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 2. They filed a lawsuit in August 2019 against Danny Masterson and the Church of Scientology. The lawsuit is not about their rape allegations, which is a parallel criminal case going on in a different courthouse. The lawsuit is about the campaign of harassment they say they've been through ever since the women came forward with these rape allegations uh, six years ago. So stalking, noisy investigations, uh, they claim they've been, you know, just harassed, uh, you know, and to this day, it's not even after they filed the lawsuit in 2019, they, they claim there's stuff going on just now. And once again, Scientology said, well, you know, you were Scientologists and you and you signed these contracts. Um, so you're going to have to take this to arbitration. And initially, like Judge Burge, their judge, also in Los Angeles Superior Court, Judge Stephen Clyfield, agreed. And he said, yes, a contract is a contract. You're going to have to take this to arbitration. They filed a petition uh, for review with an appeals court that denied it. And then they went ahead and, uh, and filed a petition with the California State Supreme Court, which I thought was a long shot. I think they thought was a long shot. But there's interesting timing because right after they had filed that petition, to the state Supreme Court asking for them to intervene. The preliminary hearing in the criminal case was held in May last year in Los Angeles. And this was the first chance for these three women. The criminal case involves the allegations of Chrissy Carnell Bixler and the two Jane Doe's that those three women got to testify live in a court for the first time about what they say Danny Masterson did to them. And it was horrific. And, you know, the details were terrible and, and they're very similar, involving allegations of drugging uh, and violence, just terrible allegations. And three women over four days were giving this testimony. A week later, the California State Supreme Court granted review in the civil lawsuit. And I have to think that those justices saw some press coverage of what was coming out in that criminal case, even though they weren't related. And so the, the state Supreme Court surprised everyone by granting review of the arbitration ruling in the civil lawsuit, resulting in this appeal hearing that you, you brought up that the two of us and many other people watched live on Zoom. And um, it, you know, it didn't seem to go all that well for um, Chrissy's side, the, the attorney, Marcy Hamilton was making some points that didn't seem to be landing with the justices. But then the justices in that appeals uh, panel, 
surprised everyone because they kind of they got their ruling outside of what Marcy Hamilton had been arguing. Marcy Hamilton, the attorney for the Bixler plaintiffs, had been arguing, okay, they signed contracts when they were Scientologists, but they've left the church, so they should no longer be subject to those contracts. And the justices didn't buy that. They're saying just because you left the church doesn't mean you can't be obliged to a contract you signed while you're still in. But the justices said the real issue was not that they were no longer Scientologists, but that the harm Scientology was allegedly causing them, the stalking, harassment, libel, all this stuff that was supposed to be going on, that was occurring after they left. And that's why those contracts should not apply. Not because they had left Scientology alone, but because the harm was occurring now. So that was a huge, stunning ruling in January. This appeals court overturned the arbitration agreement. Uh, and you said you were watching, you had some thoughts about that. that hearing. Oh, yeah, the, it, I, I do. And I think the, uh, it, it was enormous. During the hearing, the key, mo- the key moment I saw in the hearing, and I do a lot of court watching, um, Justice Moore asked Scientology's attorney, William Foreman, this was the most interesting and pointed question. Justice Moore, what happens if I went into Scientology in 1980 to check it out and then left after two weeks? If I had signed the contract, meaning the arbitration contract, and was hit by a truck owned by Scientology 20 years later, would I still be bound by the, the contract? Attorney Foreman, that would be Scientology's position, yes. That's when I knew that Justice Moore had walked Foreman and Scientology right off a cliff. Right off a it, cliff. It was an amazing moment. I mean, I, I remember looking at Foreman, you know, thinking, you're really going to make that argument? <laughs> it's crazy. Well, he stuck with it. He is stuck with it. He's stuck with it because he has to be stuck with it. Scientology wants... Scientology wants control over you for the rest of your life, no matter what, even after your death, because the contract itself says even my heirs cannot sue. Right. So they wanted to continue. So the California appeals court wrote, quote, the issue properly phrased is after petitioners have left the faith, can Scientology still require that all of Scientology's future conduct with respect to petitioners, including torts of whatever kind, be governed by Scientology law with disputes to be resolved solely in Scientology Scientology tribunals by Scientology members, we conclude it cannot. And they actually go further. In effect, Scientology suggests that one of the prices of joining its religion or obtaining a single religious service is eternal submission to a religious forum a subsilential waiver of petitioners' constitutional right to extricate themselves from the faith. The Constitution forbids a price that high, unquote. And this, this, I think the court nailed it. The price of joining Scientology cannot be so high that you're eternally bound to their ecclesiastical justice system. You have a right to extricate yourself from the faith because consent belongs, and this is an important point, Consent belongs to the individual. If you agree to be governed by Scientology's rules, you consent to be governed and you will be governed. Now, when you withdraw your consent by resigning, and that's why I make a big deal out of people, the law says you have to commit a positive act. That's why I urge people when they leave Scientology, write a formal letter of resignation, tell them you're no longer bound by Scientology's ecclesiastical rules, you are withdrawing your consent, you don't agree to be. Copy everybody from RTC, every org you went to, CSI. I mean, make it a total, just make it a total resignation so that everyone knows. That could become an important court document later. That's what I urge people to do. I'm not a lawyer. Seek legal advice you know, on this. But that's what an, a key case found in the Oklahoma Supreme Court in the 1980s that was important. So I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great advice. I think that people should do that. And, uh, that was a great hearing. That was, that was the key moment. And then they had this amazing ruling. 
Um, since then, Scientology has filed a few things, making it clear that they are livid about this. Uh, in, in particular, what offends them is that these justices kind of ignored what the plaintiff's attorney was saying and just looked at it from a logical point of view. And as you said, they just said, you shouldn't be bound to this forever. And, you know, things happening to them after they left should not be fall under that contract. So Scientology is hopping mad, claiming that these justices uh, exceeded their authority, which is silly because, of course, justices can do whatever they want. And so the next thing we're waiting for in that case is Scientology has said they are going to petition the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So they're now going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and say their religious rights are being trampled by the California courts because they can't rule over these people's lives forever. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a scary Supreme Court right now, Jeffrey. What do you think about this? I mean, most ninety percent of the petitions that are sent up there never get heard. But does something like this have a chance? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I was contemplating that after Roe v. Wade being overturned. And, and, and Roe v. Wade, of course, is like a, the tectonic plates in the two Americas, and. The overturning Roe v. Wade was a long-term goal of the Catholic Church, the Evangelicals, the Protestants, you know, so many groups. This is a different, this is, this is an entirely different issue. So let's switch away from Roe v. Wade. The question that's going to come back to haunt Scientology before the Supreme Court, my prediction if after you leave Scientology and you get hit by a truck owned by them 20 years later, is that contract still in effect? Yes. They're going to be stuck with that argument saying, if you ever step foot in Scientology, we own you for the rest of your life when it comes to anything Scientology. I think the court will not hear it. If they, And if they do hear it, they will rule against it. Because... You cannot have. You cannot have a uh, in law. You can't take away the consent of someone to join a religion, because freedom of religion means you have the right to join a religion and to leave a religion. And if they actually said you can join a religion, but you can never actually leave it if you sign a contract, I don't see how that is legally viable, in any frame of reference except. Well, uh, sure, you don't see how. You don't see how it's viable, but you know the, I know the way Scientology argues things. They'll make it sound reasonable. What they'll do is they'll say this is about religious rights being trampled, uh, which right now uh, the Supreme Court seems interested in, and that they will say that this California court, may it's, it's going to be a legal argument. It's not going to be a factual argument. It's going to be a legal argument saying that this California court has stifled a church by making a, a decision based not on what the people in front of it were actually arguing. Uh, I don't know if that would tempt the church, the Supreme Court or not. Like I said, most of these don't get heard, but we're waiting. It should be uh, just a few more days. We're going to get to see what this petition looks like and what Scientology is saying. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess there is a risk, as you're saying, that they could take it up and rule against Scientology, and then that would really be bad for the church, wouldn't it? It'd be terrible. And and but but let's think this through for a minute. Just, just for the sake of argument, let's say the Supreme Court upheld religious arbitration that it was eternally that it, that it, that they upheld it and said yes, if you sign a religious arbitration agreement, even after you leave the church, you're never out of that contract. That would be absurd and would turn our, our, our nation, it would make a farce out of individual freedom. That is, you would be a slave. And that meant, you know, I went into a, a Catholic church 30 years ago, right, for a wedding. Uh, let's say I was, I was married in the Catholic church 30 years ago, just a hypothetical, right? And I left the faith and everything. 30 years later, does the Catholic church still have jurisdiction over me? If someone was baptized into the Mormon faith 30 years ago so that they could marry, you know, a Mormon, 
I'm sorry, Latter-day Saint, do the latter, and then they left the faith. So I don't think it'll stand. I think it'll, I, I, even with our activist court, there's still there's still those dividing lines uh, that are not Roe v. Wade. So this is an interesting argument because it look with our with this supermajority of conservatives, it could go badly. But I predict it could, it could go badly for Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it could go very badly. I don't think Scientology wins. I think the I don't think the court hears it, and then Scientology, they'll start arguing. You know, the question becomes: Do these contracts end immediately, or do they? You know, because the example of the truck was so perfect. Twenty years later, yes, they're still in force. So then it gets down into the weeds where you argue it in court: What does it cover? For how long? What's the duration? Uh, and that's why I urge people when they resign to write that letter saying, I resign effective this date, this time, and I withdraw my consent to be governed. And then they can produce that. If Valerie could have produced that in court saying, here's my resignation letter. No, but see that, let me let me correct you there. Because yeah. uh, Valerie left and she did sign a, a resignation letter with them videotaping her. But I think part of the problem for Valerie, see the in the Bixler case, the appeals court found that this harassment of them has occurred years after they left Scientology. But in Valerie's case, she's alleging harm both while she was an employee and afterwards. I think that makes it a little stickier for her is that she's alleging kidnapping while she was in the Sea Org and she's alleging harassment after she left the Sea Org. So it's not as easy for her to apply the test from the Bixler case. And in fact, that's another problem is the Bixler case was never formally published. So I think it's a little bit, the Bixler, the Bixler ruling was amazing. It was fantastic. It cleared things up, but it has kind of a narrow, limited application. Look at how Scientology's predation works. Hubbard said to go find their ruin. So you find a person's ruin, you get them in a, a psychologically vulnerable moment and I've interviewed a lot of people off the record and on the record. So they get you in a psychologically vulnerable moment. They have found your ruin and saying Scientology can help you. So what they do is they make you go watch a film called Orientation. And that's legally done. They make you see that orientation film because that introduces you. And then you sign a contract saying, yeah, I agree. I've seen the film Scientology Religion. And they say, look, you have to sign this paperwork. Now, the fact is you cannot get any Scientology services without signing the contract. So I'm not saying not sign any contracts. I'm just saying if you're thinking about Scientology, you better know what you're getting yourself into by reading the contracts. Scientology always saw pedals like, hey, if you can approve this paperwork and sign this, we can get you right into auditing, right? But you're right. When you're psychologically vulnerable and hurting and you think there's answer and help to your problem, you'll sign anything and not think about it. And it come back and it will come back to haunt you. Because Tony, these contracts are legally binding. Now, whether or not they can fair game you after you leave the church, that's a different question. But the arbitration contract has force. You're kind of stuck with it. You're gonna have to fight it out in court. If it concerns stuff after you left the church, that's a different matter. So I think in the, you know, the litigation is going to be start splitting this up, splitting this stuff apart. Scientology would like to have it be monolithic where you never get out of it, where I think in the courts, it'll start being split apart. Well, what we need, what we really need is for some court somewhere to actually examine this arbitration gambit for what it is. They're just looking at it at the front end. And is this a contract or is it not a contract? Are these people obliged? Or are they not obliged? And they're never looking at the basic fairness of this arbitration, which is completely set against the people who are, you know, uh, former Scientologists. And maybe someday one of these courts will finally start to look at this whole setup with three arbitrators who have to be members in good standing and an IJC, an international justice chief who does not allow for the person 
you know, suing Scientology to have an attorney with them. There's no transcript kept. I keep seeing today people commenting on my stories saying, well, Valerie should should have the judge make sure she has an attorney. They don't seem to understand. Once the court grants Scientology this motion so that they can have arbitration, the judge no longer has authority. It's all, Valerie is completely at the mercy of the Church of Scientology's rules and regulations. Now, in the Bixler case, they got out of it because the harm that was alleged happened after they left Scientology. And, and, and you know, thankfully, they have that result. But we'll see. You know, Scientology's hopping mad about it. They're going to go to the Supreme Court. It could be entertaining. You never know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I hear you, Tony. I want the arbitration contract put on trial. Scientology's arbitration contract needs to be put on trial and shown to be a bad faith contract of adhesion that's unenforceable. That's what I want to see. Because I speaking see this, of, yeah. Speaking of trial, the fourth case that I want to talk about today of the four is uh, the looming trial of Danny Masterson. So this is very different than the other cases we've been talking about. This is an actual criminal prosecution of a celebrity Scientologist who was accused of forcibly raping three different women who were Scientologists at the time. And he's being tried under California's very strict one-strike law, uh, referring to sexual assault. And because there are multiple counts, he faces 15 years to life on each of them. So if he's convicted of all three, he will face 45 years to life in prison. And um, he has been, boy, has he been throwing some legal punches at this case for the last two years. But, um, you know, you were there on June 30th, which was kind of his last attempt to dismiss the case before trial. Um, And he's run into this judge, this Judge Charlene Omedo, who has been very fair to both sides. She's admonished both sides. But she doesn't really seem very. Uh, she seems she seems like she's done her homework. She understands Scientology. She understands what you know uh, Masterson's team has tried to do, and uh, she's just not putting up with some of these arguments that Masterson's team is is making. You you were there that day, weren't you? Sure. Yeah, I was there watching, uh, you know, reporting, and and uh, Judge Almeida is very sharp. She's very sophisticated. She knows the case better than Scientology's or or Danny Masterson's attorneys. I'll have to tell you that. They're not up to speed. And and just let me add a a parenthetical comment. Thomas Mestero seemed completely tentative and out of his element when he was representing Masterson. Just didn't seem to get it. And maybe it's one of those things when you're representing Scientology civilly as an attorney, you can do stuff. But when you're in the criminal case, ninth floor, which is the big Right down the hall, they were doing closing arguments for the, the guy who killed Nipsey Hussle was convicted, right? So when yeah. you're on the ninth floor, this is big time serious. You're going to go to prison forever kind of thing. She's very sharp. Like I told you when we talked after the court, um, Daddy Masterson's attorney did not have much to work with. And at one point she stopped and said, look, we've been over this before. Just, just stop it, right? She cut him off. She bent over backwards to let him make his arguments, you know, his new attorneys. Yeah. And um, th- there's just really nothing there to work with. And that's why he, yeah. And I know their strategy was to bifurcate, you know, to, to get the one Jane Doe dismissed and then split the other two. And right. he said, she said cases. It didn't work. It did not work. It was like an, an ankle deep legal defense. But, well, but part that, of the problem for them was that they what they're trying to argue with Jane Doe one in, in particular, they wanted to dismiss Jane Doe one because uh, ironically, they want her dismissed because she's the only one who actually initially reported her rape uh, at the time. Uh, she, she, she alleges that she was raped on the early morning of April 25th, 2003. And over the objections of the Church of Scientology, a year later, she went to the LAPD. But um, uh, that investigation was overwhelmed by Scientology, which had a bunch of its members submit affidavits calling Jane Doe one a liar. And it was closed at that time. Twelve years goes by. And in 2016, um, three women who have now become aware of each other. 
go to the LAPD and say, look, you know, this, this was happening to a number of us. And they reopened the investigation and Danny was charged in 2020. So his legal team is, is coming into court and saying there should not be a trial because if the DA didn't think this was worth charging in 2004, it's the same case today. You should throw it out. And uh, but the, the prosecutor's counterpoint to that is there's more information today. There are more women that have come forward today. The DA actually considered the allegations of five women before it charged on three of them. Um, more women have come forward. More evidence has come forward. And uh, Judge Olmedo uh, agreed that that I saw the minute order that new evidence justifies a prosecution. Well, the other thing that Danny's uh, team tried to do was talk about there's one particular witness who will show up in trial. I don't want to say his name right now, but it'll, it'll show up later at trial, who is now saying that he can't, he doesn't recall what happened that night. And he, and he they, the defense thinks he's crucial to their case, but he doesn't recall. And so the Danny's legal team's argument is if the DA had charged this in 20, 2004, we could have interviewed this guy then and his memory would be fresh. But now he can't recall what happened. So that's prejudicial to Danny's case. And I love, uh, you know, you were there and some other people were there and told me that Omedo's response was, this was Philip Cohen who was making these arguments for Danny. And the, and the judge Omedo looked at Cohen and said, have you ever worked a gang case? Yeah, <laughs> and the, impl the, the implication was that when police interview gang members, they will often say, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember. And then, but, but when they get into court and they're under oath, then suddenly they remember and, and talk about it. And so she was, you know, she was explaining. And the other problem with this argument is they're basically saying, we don't know what this guy would say on the stand, so, so kill the case. And it just doesn't make sense because, well, if we don't know what this guy is going to say on the stand, let's have a trial and he can say it then. How does that disqualify the trial? So it just wasn't a winning proposition. And I, I really thought that was interesting. Right after the case, we, you and I talked and you kept telling me that he, he just wasn't landing. Philip Cohen just wasn't landing a big hit. No, no. In fact, he was arguing like he was arguing certain cases, which Judge Almeida actually had to school him on to correct him. <laughs> on. She had a wow. much superior understanding than he did of certain cases. Oh, wow. And I, I found her to be she's a brilliant legal mind, just a great jurist. She, she restores her faith in jurists. And this whole thing that uh, Philip Cohen was arguing that uh, the time delay prejudiced his client. But, but Mr. Mueller, the, the district attorney, said, no, it's not prejudicial. There's new evidence can come forward or new technologies. So you have a classic example of a rape that happens in 2004. Let's say they didn't have the DNA technology, but it emerges in 2022, that it proves that this guy raped, you know, this woman, right? So new technology is not prejudicial. New witnesses are not prejudicial. And, and then that, that is the law, and she cited it. Cohen wanted to make, he, it was almost like he was, impro you know, spitballing it, to use, you know, a colloquial term. He was wanting things to be that just aren't, are not so in law. So he's arguing prejudice, prejudice, prejudice. Well, there's no prejudicial, there's no prejudice here in the cases going forward. A comment I made on the bunker that I want to repeat that I think is very, very trenchant and worthwhile. When John Gotti, his last trial where the, the, the feds had him on tape talking about murder and all kinds of crimes, he knew he was going down. He told his lawyer, look, I know I'm going to jail. Just file enough motions. Keep me out of prison as long as you can so I can enjoy time with my family. I've been looking at Masterson's criminal defense as like, please check every box, no matter how much it costs. Keep me out of criminal trial as long as you can. But what I want to say to Danny Masterson is, you know, you're the one who brought this on yourself, these allegations, and criminal trial will come. I mean, it catches that he's been playing this big delay game, looking desperately for anything to get out, you know, get himself out of these charges. 
And when you watch the criminal justice system work, it is slow. And as they say, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind finally. So Philip Cohen, my, my impression walking away, if that's the best he has, Masterson is going to be convicted. Well, let's, but see, that's an interesting thing because um, he, he initially he was being represented by Tom Mesro and Sharon Applebaum. Um, and they got through the preliminary hearing last year. And then after the preliminary hearing last year, he brought on Sean Hawley and Philip Cohen. So he now had four attorneys, four high-priced attorneys. And then at some point early this year, I noticed that Mesro and Applebaum weren't saying much. They were kind of hanging back as Hawley and Cohen were doing the motions and briefs and stuff. And then at uh, not the June 30th, but there was, I think there was a hearing in May Danny surprisingly showed up. It was just supposed to be his attorneys. And we were like, why is Danny there? It turned out he was there to announce that he was firing Mesereau and Applebaum and that Hawley and Cohen uh, were, were going to be his attorneys. Now, somebody in the, I, somebody very knowledgeable about the case had predicted to me that this was going to happen. And they said, look, he's going to fire his attorneys at some point just to buy time. But in yes. this case, it it only bought him six weeks. You know, she moved it back. Judge Omedo moved the case, the trial date, from August 29th to October 11th. So, you know, th- I was told that this was sort of the big nuclear bomb that Danny could pull in order to really move things back. But it, he only got six weeks out of it. That's nothing. Uh, but then the, the question is, okay, is he really going to keep Holly and Cohen then through trial and after your report, and this isn't the first time I've heard that Cohen was kind of you know not impressing Judge Olmedo. Um, I have to wonder if he's going to do this at least one more time. I, I know some of the experts I talked to believe that he will try at least one more time to get a delay by firing attorneys, which will get him say from October to January. Uh, so I'm I'm anticipating that that may occur. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he will go ahead with Cohen and Holly, and we'll. We, I, I plan to come out, and uh, you and I will be hanging out watching this trial in October, and I, I think it'll be pretty entertaining, Jeffrey. Oh, oh I, oh, I uh, look forward to watching it every day. I, and to, I'll tell you, watching uh, Philip Cohen, Sean Holly didn't talk. Um, by the way, at, at, at that trial last week. Um, his civil attorney, Andrew Breitler, showed up. Right. Breitler did show up. That's yeah, weird. I, did, I should have should have mentioned that in the story, but go ahead. I was sitting across the aisle from him, you know. And uh, so watching, watching Mr. Cohen, he's very articulate. He has a good presence. You know, he's very, uh, he's very gentlemanly, to use that term. So he has a good court presence. But I got to tell you, when he starts getting irrational, to use, to use that term, he's not going to play well in front of a jury. I got to tell you that. There were some things he did and said I don't think he would do in front of a jury. Or if I was Masterson, I'd, I'd hope to hell he didn't do. Sometimes he did stuff that's like, what the? Are you thinking? Why are you even saying this? Because it was just, I've watched a lot of lawyers, good ones and bad ones. And there were some things where, like, he just he just didn't get the calculus or the logic or, you know, the, the words came out wrong. I don't know what it was. But there were some things he really – I would not want him representing me. I'd put it that way, you know. Interesting, so, interesting. No, I didn't. I was not impressed. Parts of it – I mean, I like his general overall manner, but when it comes time to actually deliver, I, I could see a jury just seeing right through him. Well, maybe that's what Holly's for. Maybe you know, Sean Holly is is maybe who they want to put in front of a jury, uh, and Cohen is more of a motions guy. I don't, I don't know. It is very interesting that Andrew Brettler showed up. What that means is, in the civil lawsuit, not the criminal case, but again, the civil lawsuit that's on hold right now, while the the criminal case goes on, Danny is represented by Andrew Brettler, who works with Marty Singer, very famous entertainment attorney. Andrew Brettler has become uh, kind of famous himself because of his client list. Correct. He has people like Army Hammer and Prince Andrew. Uh, basically, any 
high-profile celebrity male who was, a, was a, accused of abusing women runs to Andrew Brettler to represent them. Uh, and I don't know what it means that he was sitting in the criminal trial because he's got nothing to do with the criminal trial. Criminal no, case, not, not, not criminal trial yet. Well, well I take it that uh, Danny Masterson had him go down there hoping you know, that he would relay good news to him. I see. But if it was bad, you know, Andrew Brettler would have to like buffer it to Danny. Danny That's a very interesting suggestion. So that, that perhaps Danny asked Brettler to go down and watch Cohen and Hawley and maybe provide an assessment of them to him. I think that's what he did. I think he wanted a report card from someone of Andrew Brettler's stature. I see. And, and also I think that because, uh, Quan and Holly are new. It'd be better for Andrew Brettler to give Danny the news either way. Right? Well, you mentioned Andrew Brettler's stature, and I'm I, I I heard that it's his stature's in the David Miscavige range. Is that uh, accurate? Well, well, I'm talking stature as a criminal defense lawyer. Oh, so, okay. I'm so, sorry. I'll, so, I'll so knock yes. it off. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm meaning yes, he is in the David Miscavige range, but criminal defense lawyers expect that. They're notorious. They get notoriety, but that means notorious, right? So uh, that was my very poor attempt to say that apparently Mr. Brettler is not a very tall man. So, which doesn't matter. It's, he's a great. He's apparently <laughs> oh, very good at his. He's apparently very good at his job, and that's all that really matters. And he has an amazing client list. So, good well, he him. has perfectly quaffed hair. He's got he's got great hair. I'll give him that. Uh, nice suits. He, you know, he's but he nodded at me. Didn't know who I was. It was you know. This, uh, sitting in the hallway, he walks by and nods at me. Like, hey, what's up? What's up? I have <laughs> so, no complaints. The only time I, I, the only times I've reached out to him for information, he's gotten back to me. So I have no complaints. He's, uh, you know, he's he's certainly made a, he certainly identified a uh, a particular uh, area of expertise that he's gotten very well known for. Indeed. Well, listen, Jeffrey. Thank you so much, man. There's so much we're watching. Uh, again, real quick, we're waiting to see uh, how Scientology's IJC responds to Valerie nominating Elizabeth Moss. That should come any day. We're waiting to see uh, Scientology's motion to compel arbitration in the new labor trafficking lawsuit filed by Valeska Paris and the Baxters. That should be in a few days. And uh, we're waiting to see Scientology's petition to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Bixler case which is going to try to get the U.S. Supreme Court interested in Scientology's arbitration scheme. And finally, maybe the most important, Danny Masterson did not get a case dismissed in his rape criminal uh, prosecution, and he is now facing an October 11th trial date, which could put him in prison for the rest of his life. It's just kind of amazing uh, that we're there in that case. Um, and a lot of different things going on. We're watching it all at the bunker. And again, my thanks that you have been helping us out. Your help has been invaluable, Jeffrey. Well, thank you, Tony. And I'm, I'm very glad to help and keep the public informed because this is so much in the public interest. The public it sure has, is. And you do a great job of letting the public know what goes on in the world of all things Scientology. And you'll be commended for it. Well, you know, right. I, it's it's fascinating to me, and yes, there is other media coverage of these cases, but they don't, they just don't seem interested in the step by step uh, nature of it. And I am, I'm interested in every little filing, and I know our readers are; they're fascinated. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, thanks so much to our commenters who keep us on our toes and ask questions about these cases. Sure. And uh, should be a very very interesting summer. It should not. And Tony, I'll add, you know a lot of the inside baseball and Scientology, just like I do. Mike Rinder, my wife, Karen de la Carriere. It's really people who know the inner workings. I think we tell the story better because the media out there doesn't do the digging. And like you, I, sh I, you know, I really like all the details of how it really goes on down to even people's expressions on their faces. Like when, when Judge Almeida dismiss the motion that Masterson just made. Yeah. Watching the change come over Philip Cohen, his body language. 
just the way his shoulders folded in and his head went down. You know why? I'll tell you why. You know why? Because at that moment, he started to think about, how am I going to explain this to Danny and to David Miscavige? (laughs) Bingo, because uh, at that point, Bradley would say, hey, Philip, that's your call to make. I'm out of here. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm I'm grateful that we have you there to see uh, reactions like that. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. And uh, we'll be keeping an eye on these cases. Okay. Great talking to you. Thank you.